Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you'd open up our hearts and minds and that you'd speak and make us attentive to your voice. May your voice be louder and more defining for us than all of the other voices in our life. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we began a new series a few weeks back, or a couple months back, I guess now, in the book of 1 John entitled Authentic Church. Uh, Next week, we're actually going to be uh, completing the series. And so next week, we're going to spend walking through the entirety of chapter 5. And you think, that was bad planning on my part to save an entire chapter for one week. And if you're thinking that, you're right. Um, I actually was planning on getting into that chapter today, but um, uh, there was a section from last week's teaching that I couldn't get to. And I, I thought it was so important because it deals with an issue that is so relevant to our lives. And so I wanted, what I want to do today is just primarily focus on two verses here in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 17 and 18 uh, because these topics that it, it raises is so, I think, important for our lives. And so in verse 17, he actually... Uh, talks to us about how to have something that everybody wants to have. And then in verse 18, uh, he tells us how to get rid of something that almost all of us want to get rid of. And so in verse 17, he talks to us about how we can, in the face of our insecurities, develop a deep-seated confidence and then in verse 18, he talks to us how, about how in the face of all of our fears, we can actually have those fears driven out and experience peace in the midst of those crippling, oftentimes, fears and anxieties. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, does anybody else find themselves wrestling at times with insecurity? And maybe you feel insecure about how far you've gotten in life, what you failed to do, what you did and you shouldn't have done. Uh, you're, you feel insecure about your past. Uh, you feel insecure in church because you don't seem to know as much as other people around here. And, and you just feel this sense of insecurity. And some of us have fears. And we, we are afraid. We are afraid of what other people think about us. Some of us are so concerned about that, that when we leave a space like this, like a public social space, we go home and we agonize over the conversation we had. And we think about, did I say it wrong? What did they, did I look stupid? Do I sound stupid? Do I look stupid? Uh, Some of us are deeply afraid of, uh, and and are are fearful that we're going to be rejected, that maybe we are not worthy of love or belonging, And these are very deep-seated fears, I think, we carry and deep anxieties. And and, and most of us need, in the face of these insecurities, a deep sense of confidence. And John is going to tell us where he believes that kind of confidence can be found. And for John, it comes from what he says. He, He gives this label. He gives this fascinating, arresting phrase. He says that this confidence can be found, this, this fear can be driven out through something that he calls perfect love, or when we become perfected in love, which that just is, I mean, I don't know whether or not you're a Christian or not, or you've been coming to church for a long time or not, but that's just an interesting way of thinking, isn't it? 
that somehow perf- you can reach a state of becoming perfected in love, and that perfect love can actually deal with some of the worst stuff going on beneath the surface when it comes to our fears and our insecurities. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of explore this idea from the text today. Now, uh, we need to begin, though, where John begins. He really sets this conversation about our fears and insecurities and this deep confidence and perfect love. He sets it, interestingly, in the context of the day of judgment. You see, when, when John here is thinking about fear and insecurity, he's primarily thinking about a fear and insecurity that can come in a human heart because they are fearful and worried about the day, that day when they stand before God on the day of judgment. In fact, look at how he puts it in uh, chapter 4, verse 16a. He begins like this, or 16b, he says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that, listen to what he says, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, the idea of a coming day of judgment is not very popular in American culture. And if you go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or something like that, you're probably not going to find on the bestseller list, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll learn about how to start a business Uh, how to um, uh, find, you know, a a sense of peace and solitude in the midst of the busyness and harriedness of life. But very few of us are going to see a book about how to prepare for the coming day of judgment, right? I mean, this is just not a popular subject. And so we need to talk a little bit about what he means when he talks to us about the day of judgment. Of judgment. This is a really important idea, actually, in the in the New Testament, in the biblical imagination. And the 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 uh, the, the, the New Testament writer Paul, I think he captures for us in a very shorthand description what the, the the final day of judgment, what this day of judgment is all about. And he describes it like this: He says, "It is the Lord who judges me." Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 that he is the judge of the final judgment, that all of humanity will be accountable to him. And so he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. And when he comes and when he sits on that throne of judgment, look what it says, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. You know, there's stuff Sometimes we've been doing in the dark that nobody else knows about. That stuff you do in the closet, it's who you are when nobody else is looking. He says, who you are in the dark will be brought out in the light. And then he says, and he will expose the motives of the heart. You know, there's a lot of religious people that look good on the outside, but inwardly, even though they look good on the outside, there are all kinds of twisted, self-centered motivations regarding how they control other people. Paul says here, that's going to be exposed. And so what's done in the dark will be brought in the light. Those hidden motives will be exposed. And get this, uh, according to Paul, all people, uh, Christian people, non-Christian people, believing people, unbelieving people, all of us will stand on the day of judgment. Now, I know some of you thought, wait a second, um, what are you talking about? 
I thought to be a Christian meant that you had a get out of judgment free card. Uh, that, you know, I was going to get there and, and, you know, all of those, you know, bad, unbelieving people, they're going to stand before the judgment, but I get a pass because of, G- like, like what, what do you mean? We are going to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment. Yes, indeed, we are. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul puts it like this. He says, for we must all appear. How many of us must appear? All. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's specifically talking to the church. He says to you all, to me, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for, to us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now somebody says, wait a second, wait, wait one second. I thought that uh, Christians were saved by grace. <laughs> you know, what's this stuff about being judged? Uh, our works will be judged at the end. What, what, what is that? mean? What are are we talking about? Well, listen, don't misunderstand me. Christians, and the only way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And the eternal God has broken into human, he has invaded this old broken world with his saving power in Jesus Christ. And in his saving power, he has broken the power of sin and death and darkness and curse and the devil. And so when you come to Christ, you are saved from death and darkness and sin and curse and the devil. But what you are not saved from is you are not saved from the day of judgment. You are not saved from having to answer for what you do with your life. Now you say, wait a second, wait, I, how is that good news? You know? like, well, but, but just stop and think with me for a second. Stop, stop and think with me for a second. What happens on the day of judgment except that we are told that what we have said and done and thought actually matters. It's meaningful. You know, um, I had uh, the experience a couple years back of turning in a doctoral dissertation for my doctoral ministry program. And I had spent two years writing and researching and then going through that agonizing work of revisions. And it was just an arduous, painful process. And then when you get done with it and you turn it in, you have to sit before an examination committee and give an oral defense of your argument in your thesis. And, um, and, and somebody might say, well, Josh, was that, you know, th- would you have preferred not to have done that? No, I wanted to do that. You know, when you put so much of your heart and your soul into something, the last thing you want is for somebody to patronizingly tap you on the head and say, hey, buddy, good job on the dissertation. You're like, did you read it? They're like, it doesn't really matter what you wrote in there. No, I, wa- I want critical feedback. I want my work to be taken seriously. And for your commendation to mean anything, I also want you to critique ways in which my argument does not follow. I, I, I want, you know, it, it was the, the Jewish philosopher and Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, who said, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. You know, at least if somebody hates you, it means you matter to them enough 
to hate them. But if somebody is, it just means you, your words don't matter, your existence doesn't matter. And listen, one thing that it means to be created in the image of God and actually to be an object of the love of God means that what you do matters and you will answer in your body for what you've done with your body and with your resources and with your money and with your time and with your words. And, 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 and you will, this is what he is saying. We will all stand before God on that day of judgment. Now, I know again, you know, I mean, um, of course, modern people, we, we oftentimes look back on ancients and, uh, you know, because, you know, modern secular people don't live with much of a fear of this day of judgment, do we? You know, um, it's not a, a very much of a defining reality for most of us. And yet for the ancients, it was a real live issue. You know, uh, in the ancient world, uh, the, you know, think of it like this. For modern people, uh, how is it that you want to die? You want to die quick, painless, and in your sleep. Amen? For the ancients, they'd be like, that's the worst way you could die. Because if it's quick and painless in your, in your sleep, how are you going to prepare to meet your maker? They're like, please don't let me die in my sleep. Give me an opportunity. And, and I think the difference between moderns and ancients is that ancient people, or modern people fear death and ancient people feared God. And so, you know, we, we modern people, though, we, we think, oh, well, you know, this whole idea of divine judgment, isn't that just a tool of manipulation and control? You know, can't this be weaponized? And of course, of course it can't. Almost all good truths can be distorted, and this one certainly can. And many people do. They, they use it as a tool of behavior modification, because what better way for the church or for a parent to try to moder moderate the behavior of people than with the threat of hellfire and judgment, right? You know, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why, because Jesus Christ is coming to town to get you, you know? So be on your best behavior. And of course, it's abused. And, 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 but, but, but be careful. I mean, modern secular people, we may not overly concern ourselves with the idea of divine judgments, but make no mistake, we do care deeply about judgments. We care deeply about the judgments of others. Our, our concern, though, is just not with the judgment of God. It's with the judgment of other people. Oh, I, I can't have them in my house. It's so messy. What are they going to think about me? They're going to judge me, you know? I, I, you know, you walk into a room and, and, and you just feel insecure about yourself and about how you look, and, and you're so concerned about the judgments made by other people. And we wonder, did I do enough? Am I worthy enough? You know, I remember uh, years ago, when I was 22, 23 years old, my father-in-law uh, signed me up for this uh, group called the Master's Program, and it was this group of high-powered business leaders, and there were CEOs and uh, uh, megachurch pastors and uh, congressmen, all of these uber-successful people. My father-in-law threw me in with this group, hoping it would rub off on me. And I remember the primary thing I felt when I go to those gatherings was fear and insecurity. And it's because 
at that time, I was working as a telesales agent with AT&T. So I was far and away uh, the poorest, uh, the least educated. I didn't have a, I hadn't graduated from college. I, you know, I was the least educated. I was the least successful by far of the people in the bunch. And I remember the, the anxiety I would feel when I'd sit next to somebody at a table and they said, introduce yourself to the person next to you. And I knew the very first question they'd ask is, so what do you do? And I would answer vaguely, I work with AT&T hoping they might imagine me in some upper echelons of management or something. What do you do with AT&T? Oh, I work with sales, hoping it would stop there. Oh, what kind of sales? Telesales. And the conversation would stop, and I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, why are you here? And then they would start looking past me for somebody else to talk to, because I was a nobody and a nothing. And that's our deep fear is that we'd be considered a nothing, a nobody, unworthy. And we are constantly fretting and fearing the judgments and the verdicts of others. And as a result, we are so anxious to litigate ourselves and to present a resume. And you know those people that are just trying too hard when you're in the conversation. It's odd. Sometimes even the most successful people you'll ever meet they, they, need, they, are, they just need to tell you about all of their greatest successes. Why is that? They're deeply insecure. Why do we do that? We're deeply, like, I need you to know that I'm, I'm a person of substance. I matter. Stop judging me, you know? Just for a moment, turn to the person next to you and just say, stop judging me. Yeah. It feels good, doesn't it? But... Mary, you can't shout it across the room. I'm just... <laughs> um, listen, our, our issue as modern people is not that we are not afraid of judgment. It's that we're afraid of a different kind of judgment. And let me just ask you, we might think, oh, well, those uh, ancient people, they were so irrational, you know, worried about all of these fears of divine judgment. But let me just ask you, what actually is more rational? To have a sense, certain sense of fear when it comes to standing before that infinite, eternal power and holiness that called all things into being and giving an account for the actual ways in which you have hurt other people in this world and you have ransacked His creation. What makes more sense, fearing God or fearing some creature of dust oftentimes, who you don't even care that much about. You don't even like them. You're like, but they think I'm, you know, you're like, well, who cares? But what's interesting is in our text, John is writing to us not to, he's, he's writing to us about the day of judgment, not to tell us or to create fear in us about this day. He's telling us how we can have a fearlessness and a confidence as we approach that day. And it's interesting because uh, what he says basically to us is he says, look, the key, the key, if you are going to have this fear driven out of you and you are going to know confidence in the face of the judgment of God and actually because these are organically related ideas before the judgments of, if you're going to have confidence in the face of, of the judgments of people around you, he says the key is perfect love. I can just imagine, you know, John here is playing our therapist. 
And I can just imagine, you sit down with John, and you're like, John, I, I've got these insecurities and these fears. I go onto my campus at school, and I'm just worried about this particular group, and, and I, I'm freaking out, and, and then I, I, just feel, I don't even feel comfortable in my own skin, and I, I can't be myself, and, and I, I'm needing to litigate and prove myself. And he's like, slow down, slow down. He'd say, let me give you a prescription. You need to be perfected in love. Perfect love, that's what you need. And you might be thinking when you're sitting before John, what do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? But that's exactly what he says. Notice what he says in, in the text. Um, we'll go to this verse. He says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us. So he talks about love being perfected with us. Why? So that, there's a so that. There's a logic here. Love is perfected so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. We can have confidence in this world before the face of God, even on that final judgment, before the face and the judgment of other people because we've been perfected in love, he says. And then he says this in the next verse. He states it even stronger. He says, there is no fear in love. Isn't that a beautiful verse? There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. You know, perfect love is like an exorcist to the demon of fear in your life. It casts out that demon of fear. Perfect love casts out that fear because fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so if we're going to know courage and confidence in the face of our insecurities and fearlessness in the face of all of our fears, he says, you need perfect love. You say, well, what, what are you talking about? And actually, that's a question that the commentators have been wrestling with. And there's three basic answers that commentators have given to that question. And so um, how are you guys doing right now? Just a little, we all good? Can we keep going? I mean, we don't have a choice. I got this sermon. This is all I got. So let's go. So what, what, are, what are the different ways in which we can understand what it means to be perfected? If perfected, being perfected in love has to do with getting confidence before God and others, what, what are we even talking about? And how do you become perfected in love? Well, one answer that the commentators give is, is they say to be perfected in love has everything to do with our love our love for other people. And so this word perfected can be translated as mature or complete. And so the idea is, is that you are growing more complete and more mature in your love for God and your love for other people. And as you do that, you will gain confidence to stand before God on the day of judgment. Now, is there a reason why some commentators go with this view? Yes, it's because the broader context is all about loving one another. Notice uh, he begins the section by saying, beloved, let us love one another. And then he closes the section by saying, look, uh, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, they're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. In other words, this whole section is about our ethical obligation to love. And so he says, look, as you are growing in love, you gain a certain sense of confidence. And, and I, I think 
maybe this has to do with a couple different things. One is, is we gain confidence before God because we're actually doing what we've been commanded to do. So my wife, Alicia, uh, led out in a theater camp last week, and uh, they did Peter Pan, and my daughter, Mia, played Peter Pan, and she was a great Peter Pan because she's 18, and like Peter Pan, she doesn't want to grow up, and I don't want her to grow up either. She's going away to college this year. Um, if you're a therapist, I need to talk to you. I need help. But as part of that camp, they auditioned for parts, and then the kids who got parts in advance had to memorize their lines before coming to camp. And the kids that memorized their lines and they had them down, they walked into camp, and they were confident because they had been doing what they were supposed to be doing. And the other ones that didn't, they were ashamed and shrunk back in the presence of my wife, Alicia, you know? And so one, one option is, is that what it's talking about is, look, we've been commanded to love and when you've been failing to love, when you've actually been hurting people with your words and with your gossip and with your uh, attitudes and with your coldness, with your slights, he's like, you're going to be ashamed on the day of judgment. So some people say that what John is talking about here is our love. Being perfected in love means to grow in maturity and how we love other people. And part of that too, I, I think when it comes to loving others, or or when it comes to our fear of others, if you are becoming mature in love, the primary question that you ask when you walk into a place like this is not, what does everyone think about me? It's, oh my goodness, they were hurting, and I, I went over and just reached out to them. You weren't even thinking about it. You moved, and there's a freedom when you're actually loving other people. It's a freedom from those voices in your own head and all of those insecurities. And so maybe that's, what John is talking about. Perfect love is our maturity and our ethical obligation to love. That drives out fears and it creates a sense of confidence for the day of judgment. But there's a second option. And some people say, no, um, loving other people is good, but whoever loves well enough to be said, I became perfect in love. Can't wait to stand before God on the day of judgment because I'll say, you wanted me to be perfect in love? Check. Got that one down. What kind of, who has that kind of confidence? And so a second option is, uh, this isn't being perfected in our love. This is about being perfected in our experience of God's love. And again, this has textual support because notice this whole section where he talks about becoming perfected in love is framed not by statements of command for us to love each other, but by statements of affirmation about God and His love for us. God is love. And we love Him because He first loved us. And actually, the meat of this whole larger paragraph is more fundamentally about the character of God and the love of God. You remember we talked last week about how God in God's very self is Trinity. He's an infinite communion of love and delight and joy within God's self. God is love, and His love was manifest. It came, became flesh among us in the person of Jesus, in His death and in His resurrection. And, and John is saying, look, when the Spirit of God makes that truth live in you, and you taste it, and you experience this love, you experience a great deal of confidence 
because you know that even though God knows you all the way down, He loves you still. You know, um, Jonathan Edwards was a theologian of the 18th century or 17th century, and uh, he, he wrote a, or he, he preached a famous sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul. That's why sermons were better back then, because they had better titles, you know? But, but this, this sermon in particular, he uses this, uh, he's talking about how there's this difference between having an intellectual knowledge of God and having an experience of God. And he uses this famous analogy of honey. And he says, you can know intellectually that honey is sweet. In fact, you could even be a science, scientist of honey. And you could write your whole doctoral dissertation on honey. You could know all of the properties of honey. And he says, you can know at an intellectual level that honey is sweet. But he said, there's a world of difference between knowing that honey is sweet and having the sense and the sweetness of honey fill your senses when it touches your tongue. And he said, God is like that. There's a difference between knowing that God is love and that Christ has given his very life for us and experience in the very depths of our being that love so that it breaks our, it deals with our junk inside and we feel okay, we feel love, I'm loved and I am okay in God's love. And so maybe uh, he's talking about our love, that's the first option. Second, he could be talking in this text about God's love and to be perfected in this love uh, is what, um, some of the ancients talked about as part of the spiritual journey, reaching ultimate union with God where you experience the beauty and the benefits of God's love at such a deep level that it drops and it makes a difference in how you live and you experience life. You know, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City and he's got a great story of a, of a young girl that came to see him one time and she was a young teenage girl in his congregation and she came to see her pastor because uh, she couldn't get a date to the dance. And she was deeply despondent and felt rejected. And so what did he do? Well, as a good pastor, he sat down and he, he reasoned with her and he talked to her about God's love in Christ. You know, the creator of heaven and earth moved everything in order to redeem you. And, and look, if the creator of all things has set his love on you, then, then what difference does it make if some pimply-faced teenage boy doesn't notice you? And she said, yeah, I know all of that but what does that matter if I can't get a date to the dance, you know? And all of us have felt that at some point in our lives, right? There's a difference between head knowledge and experiencing this love in a way that actually changes how we engage in life. But there's a third option, I think. It could be our love. It could be God's love. But thirdly, and I think this is actually what John is speaking of here, I think to be perfected in love has both to do with God's love and our love, and they are organically connected. And they're organically connected like this. You know, for John, in the larger body of this paragraph, uh, he proclaims this truth that God is love. He speaks to us about the eternal origin of love. And then he moves and he talks about the historical manifestation of this love when God's love took on flesh and blood in Jesus among us. 
And then he talks about how the Spirit is given to us so that the Spirit might illumine our eyes to the beauty of this truth that is found in the gospel, that God has come among us. His love has been for us and not against us, fully and unreservedly for us, all the way to the uttermost, even to the point of death on a cross. And then for John, that leads to the, the fourth stage where after you're experiencing this love, you can't help but be moved out in love to other people. And I think to be perfected in love, um, by the way, the last couple of weeks, I've had some highfalutin, you know, high uh, culture art that I've shown, and you guys have missed the stick figures, haven't you? Yeah, he's back, he's back. But... Um, John uses this language of abide in this text. And that word abide can be take up residence and live at home. And I I think what what he's talking about when he talks about us abiding in God's love is abiding in this reality, interacting with the God who is love in mystical prayer and quiet and solitude. And engaging with the reality of the risen and crucified Jesus through preaching through the Lord's Supper, through our study, through our engagement with the Gospels, and then seeking to have the Spirit open our eyes and hearts, and, 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 and then continually seeking to move out towards others in love, and that when we are remaining, we're living in this circle of love, as it were. We are growing deeper and more perfected and more mature and more complete in love. I think that's what John is talking about. And for John... To grow deep in love like this, to be perfected in love, is to drive out fear and insecurity. This kind of perfect love has a radical transformative power. Now, if this is what it means to be perfected in love, let me just make three brief observations in closing. Number one, if this is what it means to be perfected in love, then listen, Love is our ultimate and final end. Love is our home. It is our destination. You know, this word um, uh, perfect, uh, the Greek word is the word from which we get the word telos. And you guys know what a telos is? A telos is like an ultimate goal. It's, It's where you're headed. It's where you're moving. And what John is saying is for humans, like where humans need, like the destination, the home for full humanity, for human beings fully alive, is that home where we are receiving and giving love. We are receiving God's love and we're returning that love back to God in love and we're loving our neighbors. And John is saying, as you grow in that direction, you are becoming who you were always created to be. I mean, could you just stop and imagine right now, what would your life be like if you were so secure in the love of, that, that called all things into being? Like you were so at rest in that love that it became a ballast for your soul, that no matter the rejection you felt from people, there was a ballast for your soul in this love that you were experiencing from God. And think if you were so secure, you didn't have to self-present You didn't have to litigate and present your resume and try to impress other people. You could could be free from the judgments of others because who cares what they think? The creator of heaven and earth has set his love on you. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to have a sibling who was that secure in love? 
what it would be like to be married to somebody who was that secure in love, what, what it would be like for your own soul. I mean, this is the destination I want my life to go. Isn't it where you want to go? And John says, this is the vision. Love is our final end. It is our destination. You know, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Second, this is not only our final end, our destination, but it is a long journey and a long process to get there. So this is not a sermon you're going to apply on Tuesday. What happened this week? Well, on Tuesday, I got perfected in love. (laughs) You're like, dang, what did you take, you know? This is a, a long obedience in the same direction. It's a process, a process that in, involves disciplines of disengagement, where we're frequently disengaging, pulling off of our hearts and lives like barnacles that need to be plucked from the side of a hole in a ship. Those practices and those habits that are actually bringing ourselves down. I, every time I, I just, I'm going on Instagram and I keep going, and it makes me feel more like a loser. We'll stop going on Instagram, and so on and so forth, you know? There might be things you need to disengage from. And of course, there are practices you need to engage with. Prayer and solitude and silence and quiet and reflection and meditation and deep vulnerability and confession and self-examination. There's no other way to grow into the experience of love than through the road of vulnerability. Intimacy grows out of vulnerability and until you are vulnerable with God, when you let go and you surrender in the presence of God, you will never begin to grow in love. Until you are honest with yourself about those dark places in yourself, you will never grow in love. And so, this is a long process and a long journey, but there is a destination we can get to. The last observation is, this process can start today. It can start right now. You know, I want to invite our band to come up. And listen, The God we have gathered together today to worship is preeminently and stunningly none other than the God who loves broken, sinful, needy people. He is the God who redeems failures and delights in second chances and fresh starts and who never tires of pursuing lost sheep or waiting for prodigal children to come home or rescuing those damaged by life and left on the sides of its paths. And listen, genuine spiritual transformation does not begin with technique. It does not begin when you start to fix all of your problems yourself. It begins when we turn to God in the midst of our problems and we meet with God just as we are. Turning to God is the core of prayer. Turning to God, our sin and our shame is the heart of transformation.
And I just want to invite you to, to pause with me before we enter into this last song. And maybe the Spirit of God has been stirring in your heart and life. And, and you just feel like, I, I want this. I want to know the love of God, and I want to become more and more a person of love. I am tired of being controlled by my insecurities and by the judgments and the verdicts of all the people around me. I am tired of litigating and proving myself and trying to compete with everyone else and show them that I'm better and I'm worthy of love. I just want to rest in the reality that God loves me as I am. And you're like, I, I want to be an agent of his love in this world. It begins with surrender. And so I just want to invite you just to close your eyes right now. And just in the quiet of your heart. If today, maybe for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time, you just want to surrender afresh to this eternal love that broke into history in Jesus and let go afresh into his hands and surrender to love, would you just in the quiet of your heart just say, God, I surrender to your love. Father, we surrender to your love. The love that sent your son into this world to be our atoning sacrifice, we surrender to your love. Lord Jesus, we surrender to your sin-bearing, cross-bearing, shame-bearing love. You've laid down your life for us. We surrender to your love. Holy Spirit, we surrender to your light to break into our heart right now and to shine afresh on us the love of the Father and the Son. Let's raise our voice now and let's sing this song together that celebrates the radical love of God for us in Christ. Let's sing together now. <laughs>